Uh, Right after Paul's been speaking of the need for godly church leaders, he gives this reasoning. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his holy word. Talking about ungodly church leaders tonight. Uh, This week I shared on Facebook, some of you might have seen it, one of the most frightening scenes I've ever seen in a nature documentary. And it's the scene... I affectionately, or not so affectionately, refer to as the scene of the spore-headed ants. Yes, the spore-headed ants. Uh, There's these ants in the jungle, and what happens is they get incepted by this uh, certain type of fungus. And what happens is this fungus gets into their brain, and they start, um, they seem, everything seems normal, but then they start acting a little weird, and you see these ants are kind of looking like something weird's going on, and then all of a sudden, they stop, and literally, these shoots of plants shoot out of their heads. Right out of their heads come these fungi. And it's just absolutely terrifying. The spore-headed ants, they think all is fine. And then just the most picture of devastating carnage. These, all these ants just stopped, dead with fungi growing out of them. Anyways, I hope no one has nightmares tonight about the spore-headed ants. But I thought this is something of a picture of false teaching. As false teaching comes into the church, gets into the minds of God's people, it might seem harmless at first. It might seem somewhat benign. But then very quickly, uh, the, the fruit comes suddenly. And it's devastation. It's destruction. That's a picture of false teaching. And that's what this passage is talking about tonight. How false teaching in its subtlety, in its deception, uh, is totally destructive. And there are those that... Um, promulgate and propagate such teaching. And these people need to be sharply rebuked. And this is one of the main reasons why we saw this morning, Paul instructs the need for godly church leadership. We need godly men to direct the church, to correct the church when it's erring, because there are those actively trying to steer the church away from the sincerity, the truth of the gospel, and of godly living in the Christian life. That's why we need faithful leaders. And so we come to verse 10. Paul leads directly here saying, the reason we need these godly church leaders is because or for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. And just stopping at the beginning, there are many, not few, there's many of these. They come in all different forms, they've come in different ways throughout church history. Let's just be aware, there are many. And these false teachers subtly infect the church. And so because they come with subtle teaching, the first thing we need to do is we need to learn how to recognize them. Okay, so we're going to start off looking at how to recognize false teachers and false teaching. That's point one, the recognition. But then if we're able to recognize this sort of teaching, 
locate it, diagnose it, then we can apply the remedy. Just as a doctor first wants to diagnose the issue before prescribing a remedy for it, so we want to recognize the false teaching before we apply the remedy. So that's what we're looking at tonight, the recognition and the remedy. And uh, we're going to do this in a little bit, maybe of a different way than usual, but I'm just going to start off, I'm just going to walk through our passage here verse by verse. So uh, look at your Bibles, follow along. I'll try to explain it um, as it was kind of um, originally meant in Titus's day. And then I just want us to think about some ways we see this sort of false teaching taking place in our day, and then sort of apply it to our lives. So take a look with me here at verse 10. He says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So if you remember back to our introduction, what, the main group of these false teachers were what we call Judaizers. They were people that wanted to add to uh, the simple gospel of Christ Jewish rituals that had since been done away with. And not just Jewish rituals, but their own ideas of what they were meant to look like. And they wanted to add these to the law of God. They wanted to require circumcision. But remember, Paul didn't even require Titus to be circumcised. And he's a leader here. And so because of this, they're insubordinate. They're rebelliously fighting. They're vying for leadership uh, because they want the power. And uh, in in chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about how these people just wanted to quarrel about the law. Genealogies, all these sorts of things that are not at the heart of what God wants for his people. So they're fundamentally legalistic. That is, they are adding to the law of God. And not only are they just adding to the law of God, they're really in doing so missing the heart of the law of God. The weightier matters, as Jesus might say. And so he says in verse 11 that they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You know, false teaching, it's destructive to whole families. And they're doing this not just because they're sincere about it, but because they want the money that accrues to the position of these sorts of leaders in the church. Uh, And it's shameful. And uh, it continues in verse 12. So not just are they adding these extra Jewish ceremonies to the law, but they're living in the same way as the sinful culture. So look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. So Paul's saying this testimony of what Cretans are usually like is true of these false teachers. This quote comes from uh, a poet from Crete. So this guy who said this quote was from Crete himself. His name was Epimenides, who was uh, said to have said this. And he's really saying, like, this is kind of the people I'm from, and this is what they're like. Cretans are kind of always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That is, they're deceptive, they're malicious, they're self-indulgent. And the cultural milieu in Crete was terribly immoral. It was wildly perverse. And so even though these teachers are claiming all sorts of moral high ground with their Jewish ceremonies, they are using that almost as an excuse to live just like the sinful and immoral culture. It's not caused any external change in character that would cause them to separate themselves, to come out from among them and be separate. They're cultural accommodators. And so Titus is told, halfway through verse 13, therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. They're devoted to these Jewish myths, to man-made religion, and so they need a healthy rebuke, uh, that they may be sound in the faith. Again, if you remember from week one, this idea of soundness is the idea of health. 
being sound in body and mind. He says, they need to be rebuked because right now they're not healthy in the faith. It's like, you know, we said they've been drinking motor oil and that's producing very bad effects in their spiritual health. And so they need to be rebuked that they can come to a healthy faith, a faith that is pure in heart, that is good works, a faith like the kind we saw this morning, godly leaders should have. To be exemplary in godliness in the home, in godliness in character, holding fast to the pure doctrine of the gospel. This is what's going on here. And so if we come, to, we come then to verse 15. Uh, take a look at verse 15. This verse, uh, I think for a lot of us, it might sound kind of confusing at first. And we wonder what it means. But I think if we see this context here of these Jewish ceremonies, it becomes clear. It's not, so verse 15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is not a, a statement to be taken abstractly, like it's teaching some broad general principle. What he's talking about here in this context, when he says to the pure, all things are pure, he's saying to the one who has been internally purified, to the one who's had his mind and heart purified by the Spirit through faith in Christ, all things, especially things like food, certain days, certain rituals, all these things are clean, right? One of the biggest deals for the Gentiles in the New Testament was that all foods were now declared clean. Gentiles were declared clean. So he's saying, you guys want to do all these external rituals, practice these clean and unclean laws, consider these people pure, these people impure. He says, these, to the one who's been purified, all these things are pure. God created them for our good. But he says, then to those who are defiled and unbelieving, to those who have not had that work of grace in their heart, nothing is pure. No matter how much they wash or uh, do the right rituals, it doesn't purify. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Uh, this might kind of be like the illustration of this. So if, we're, uh, if you're with family celebrating some 4th of July stuff yesterday, yesterday, probably some celebratory hot dogs. And imagine you're going to the grill to grab your hot dogs, and a friend stops you. They're like, whoa, 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 don't eat that hot dog because it's unclean. They're like, you need to like wash that hot dog to make it clean. And you're like, actually, no, like my, my hands are clean. I've washed them and the, this hot dog looks perfectly fine to me. I'll just go right ahead and eat it. And they're trying to stop you because they're like, no, it's unclean. And then you look back and they're like trying to meticulously wipe and clean their hot dog. Meanwhile, their hands are covered in like dirt and manure. And you're like, no matter how much you clean that hot dog, you're not going to make it clean because every time you touch it, you're soiling it with your own filth. Okay, that's kind of what this picture is. If we're clean in Christ, none of these external things uh, affect our moral purity in that way. But th for these people that were unclean on the inside, uh, it, it wouldn't matter how much external religion they partook of. They would still remain unclean. And the summary of this comes, really the scary summary in verse 16 it says that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is his conclusion that their, uh, the final thing is that their walk doesn't match their talk. They say they know God, but they're not living like they know God. They're not living in a way to honor God, to follow after his ways. And so they're detestable, actually abominable is that word. They're unfit for any good work. Kind of like those people who come to Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, who they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he ends up saying, depart from me. I never knew you. 
you who practice lawlessness. They didn't know Christ, and they practiced things that were violations of his commandments and, and, their, and, and everything really they were seeking after in life. It's a scary place to be in. And so in summary, the, the two big things we learn here of these false teachers is that they added to the word of God these extra rites and ceremonies and rituals. And secondly, is that they took away from the word of God the moral imperatives, the, the ethical commands of godly living. And so different is this than those godly elders that are supposed to be godly on the inside as well as how they practice on the outside. So that's kind of the situation here at Creed. And I want us to just think of uh, where might we see these sorts of characteristics in our day, around us, and then perhaps even in our own hearts. And I think if we segment out these two components of adding to God's word and take away from it, I want us to think of uh, two different groups that uh, we, we might feel drawn towards. And I'm going to call the first one the likable legalists, and the second one the sneaky syncretists. So the likable legalists and the sneaky syncretists. So first, the likable legalists. Okay, this is, these are people who add to the word of God. Uh, it talked about they hold to the like, Jewish myths in this setting, the commands of the people. And what these likable legalists do is they add to the word of God either their personal or church traditions or their personal applications and expressions of their faith that aren't necessarily found in scripture and they make them into laws. So they take the way I've decided to do things and they say that's the way everybody has to do things. And they're likable because legalists are really good at appearances. They're really good at appearing like they've found the right route to godliness that they know that if you just do these things, you really will be more godly. It's actually like, it's these things that you have to follow me in these things so that you will be a real Christian, a real holy Christian. And so they, they, it's this, almost this idea of, you know, look at how holy and strict I am. I take my religion more seriously than you do because look at all these things I do and don't do. Uh, I, I saw this sort of... Um, I guess, mindset play out in uh, circles that I used to be very familiar with, where there was these thoughts in kind of um, a family legalism where it was taught that, you know, if you just did all these things, if you just brought everyone back home, if the, if, if the wives came home, the husbands came home to start home businesses, the kids came home, and you started a home business, and you started a family farm, and you watched the movies produced by this company, and you bought the toys produced by this company, and you wore the clothes recommended by this company, that if you did this, you would have the most happy family you would have the most godly and holy family. And the problem here is that legalists like this, they substitute or they teach sanctification by obedience. Sanctification, holiness comes by external obedience, not inward heart transformation. And when the way to be godly is only through external actions, you end up with a tick box religion that helps you feel holy and it feeds your pride while allowing your heart to corrupt on the inside. And in a lot of these families I know, the children saw the hypocrisy and the parents realized that none of these external actions made their kids more holy. 
None of them um, actually changed the heart because they were only externals. And there was a lot of bitterness and um, resentment against uh, both families and church because of it. Because when we add to God's word our traditions, and not that um, these sorts of, of, of personal things we choose to live out are wrong. I'm not saying that all these things were wrong. But when that's taught as the way to holiness, uh, it's going to lead people astray. These are the likable legals. And we need to watch out for this. Because it's tempting for us to add extra commandments to God's word. Because then when we do those commandments, we get to feel way more holy than other people who don't do them. This is a, a sporehead ant inception, if you will. Likeable legalists, but also sneaky syncretists. If the legalists add to God's word, the syncretists take away from God's word. So what this word syncretist means, uh, there's a technical definition, but just simply you can think of this. Uh, To be syncretistic is to sync up with the culture. So you have the standards of God's word. They're out of sync with what the culture wants. And so you compromise the word in order to sync up with the culture. So, for instance, you, you try to morph the Bible to bring it into sync with modern reasoning. Or to bring it into sync with everything of modern science. Or to sync up the Bible with the current ethical values. And all the other current, trendy, cultural values. And here, if the legalists promise sanctification by obedience, the syncretists promise sanctification by relevance. And it's sneaky because it posits that If you just can change the Bible, sync up more with culture here, you'll be a more effective Christian. You'll be a more culturally relevant evangelist. You won't disgrace the faith by holding to outdated ideals. These are the real Christians, the ones that can be actually um, with the culture. But the cost is the compromising of the word of God. And they ask sneaky questions like, does the Bible really prohibit this? Does the Bible really say that? And again, it, it, like the legalists, both hold themselves up as, in a sense, the true Christianity. We're the ones who are really trying to live for the Lord. Either we're trying to be so holy, or we're trying to be so effective and relevant. But both are compromising the word of God in adding to it, or in taking away from it. And we need to learn to recognize these traits. To recognize these two errors of adding to God's word and taking away from it. But we also need to recognize that this is, uh, these tendencies are in our own hearts, right? This isn't just those groups out there. Both of these can hit us in different ways. We're tempted to try to assume that the way we're living is the way everyone else should live. And when people don't live the way we do, we, get that, we like that feeling of moral superiority. It feels really good. It feeds our ego and our pride. And so we're tempted to try to make the Bible say things that we already want it to say so that we can justify how we're already living. But secondly, we're tempted to take away from God's word by often by overlooking and ignoring those commands that make us uncomfortable. Uh, especially maybe like the hard sayings of Jesus. The, the things Jesus maybe says about wealth or materialism. These things are sometimes a, a little bit too radical for us, and we really like to do the best we can to brush them under a rug, the rug and ignore them. The things it says about loving our enemies, about caring for widows and orphans in their distress. A lot of these things seem like they're pretty challenging, and it would be really nice to be able to ignore them. Taking away from God's word, it can hit us as well. And so we need to first learn to recognize this. 
But we need to recognize it so that we can apply the remedy. We want to apply the remedy. And uh, you might posit a few different remedies, but this passage gives us one. There's only one command actually given in this whole passage. There's only one direction for Titus. And it comes in verse 13, where he says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. This is what Titus was to do. Rebuke the false teachers and the false teaching. This is also what then he was to teach the elders to do. As we saw this morning, that elders in Titus 1.9 must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The ministry of rebuke is sorely lacking often in the church. It's lacking in our own lives. The ministry of rebuke. And he doesn't say just to give any rebuke. He says to give a sharp rebuke. And this word for sharp here is a word that's used to refer to, to a cliff's edge. A, a sharp, abrupt cliff's edge. And, uh, you know, this reminds us, the fact that it's a sharp rebuke reminds us that often uh, there are situations that do not allow for subtlety. So if we think about that cliff edge, if you see someone running, hurling themselves towards that cliff edge... That's not the time for, oh, um, excuse me, I, I think you should really re- reconsider and should maybe think about not, uh, oh, okay, too late. It's not the time for Sully. It's the time for the sharp rebuke, for the stop, for the you're, you're in danger, you're in peril. I might even run out and grab you. Sharp rebuke. Now, before you get worried that this is going to be a, a license for meanness and just rampage throughout the church, there's two important caveats I want to bring up. So the first is that Biblical rebuke, such as in this passage, it must be on the authority of and according to the word of God. That's where the authority to correct comes from. Like we saw this morning, the authority of an elder is the authority of the word of God applied to correct people and direct. And so what's required here is an astute analysis, not only of the word of God, but also the situation you're seeking to address. And this protects us from uh, personal vendettas and just rebuking based on our own opinions. We must uh, be going to people understanding, um, hey, as far as I understand your situation, and as far as I understand the word of God, something is out of accord. Something's not lining up. But perhaps I'm misunderstanding your situation. Would, Would you be able to explain to me or talk to me about what's going on here to help me explain it better if I'm missing something? Or maybe I'm misinterpreting the word of God here. Can you help me see how I'm misunderstanding this? So in order to actually have biblical authority to bring a word of rebuke or correction to someone, you need an understanding of scripture and of the situation at hand. And it's a cause for caution and a cause for um, carefulness. But secondly, this idea of sharp rebuke, it's, sharp rebuke is not for all circumstances. Sharpness is reserved for situations where people already know better. When there's sinners that are humbled for their sin, people that are broken, contrite, repentant, the word of God usually comes with gentle correction. This is how we see Christ deal with um, many struggling sinners. But uh, strong rebuke, strong words, this sharpness is reserved for the obstinate, for the hard-hearted, kind of like the false teachers we've seen in this passage, who should know better, but are living against the truth, who are living after their own teachings. We, we might say that uh, the, the harder the heart, 
the sharper the rebuke is needed. Harsh censure is reserved for the obstinate, for hypocrites. Uh, it's almost like you could say, you know, if someone's getting open heart surgery, uh, the harder that, that buildup in the heart of the cholesterol things, the, the, the more work needs to be done. Uh, the sharper the knife to, to, to clear it. And not just to wound for wounding's sake, but to wound so as to be healed. The word of God is like a sword that exposes us and cuts us, but also is like the needle that sews us back up and heals us. And this is exactly what the word of God is described as in Hebrews 4.12, where we're told that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the word of God that pierces and exposes sin, that exposes and opens up hypocrisy. And the purpose is that the person would be restored to health. As, the, as verse 13 says, a sound faith. God wounds so as to heal. And so we need to be wielding the sword in the body, right? The sword of the word of God. We want our church leaders to be wielding the sword wisely and well. We want to be people who hold the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and actually use it when it's needed. Sometimes it's used to encourage, sometimes to comfort But sometimes we forget that it's also used to rebuke and correct. Not maliciously, but out of love. And so we need to watch, as we are watching to recognize these false teachings, adding to the word of God, taking away from the word of God, we need to watch for this in our leaders. We also need to watch out for this among us. But then we also need to watch out for this in our own hearts. So watch the leaders. We need to always ensure you're, as a congregation, Called to hold your leaders accountable if you see them adding to the word of God or taking away from the word of God. Come and share those concerns. Watch over your leaders, but also watch over one another. I love the verse in Hebrews 3, verse 13, which reminds us to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so twisted, it's so deceitful, And it slowly hardens us more and more. It sears our conscience. And that's why we need to be uh, keeping one another accountable, to exhort one another every day so we don't let someone go a long time getting harder and harder and harder. Better to use a gentle correction when we can than need to use a sharp rebuke later. And I admit my my own struggles here, as I'm sure many of you uh, can agree with that, we're often really bad at the ministry of rebuke. We really hate awkwardness. We really hate the idea of causing conflict or any level of confrontation. I know I do, at least. Uh, We don't want to bring things up that might offend someone or make our relationship awkward. But the problem is here is that we need to love one another enough to call each other back from the cliff's edge. We need that true brotherly affection that so cares that we're willing to risk Awkwardness. We're willing to risk even a confrontation in order to help someone's soul draw nearer to the Lord. So we need love, but we need courage uh, to face the potential fallout. So let's pray to the Lord that we would be people of courageous love, who would courageously love one another for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a family. That's what we're supposed to do, to really, really love one another. We need courageous love. 
And as we watch over one another, we also want to watch over ourselves. We know that we're each susceptible to these things. We're we're susceptible to adding commands to the word of God to inflate our ego and give us a sense of moral superiority. We're tempted to take away from the word of God, to enable us to live the life of worldly passions and pleasures, of worldly comfort and ease that we want to. And so we need to be people who learn the art of daily and of weekly voluntarily coming under the knife of the word of God voluntarily coming for heart surgery. Every day as we look to God and his word to say, God, expose me, open me. Every week as we come to hear his word preached, to be praying before we come. As a, that, that first part in your bulletin, it says, preparing our hearts for worship. We want to come with hearts prepared for worship, asking as we sang, speak, O Lord. Your servant is listening. Isn't that what Samuel said? Here I am, Lord. That's the attitude we want to have. Lord, I'm listening. We want to learn to frequently sit under the word, voluntarily come under the knife of the word, praying with David in Psalm 139, 23 to 24, saying, God, search me. Know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And as we do this, we all inevitably come back exposed. None goes untouched by the exposing, cutting work of the word of God. And we're reminded that there's no one good, not one. We all fall to seeking God's approval by establishing our own righteousness apart from Christ. We all seek to avoid the true demands of love in scriptures. And we see our own selfishness. And we recognize that we deserve to have, as it were, the sword of judgment raised over us, like like Abraham held that sword over Isaac. We deserve to have it raised over us. But thank the Lord for the ram, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and who took the sword of the Lord. Christ received the sword of the judgment of God that we deserve so that we can have life in him. As Isaiah 53 says, he was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. He was the one crushed for our iniquities. And so the sword that once would have come to us in judgment to destroy, it now comes to us to cut out the heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. A heart that feels. A heart that loves the brethren. A heart that desires to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're freed from legalism because we know that Christ has already accomplished all the works for us. We don't have to strive to merit God's forgiveness, to curry his favor. We're freed from needing to build up our own case of righteousness with all these external trite rituals in our lives. And we're also freed from syncretism, from taking away from God's word, because the God who redeems also renews. And Christ gives us the Holy Spirit to make a new people who have a new love for obedience, a new heart for following the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel does for us. How much better is that than the false teachings of seeking to build up your own righteousness, of seeking to just get the fleeting pleasures of lusts, of the world? The gospel is so much better. It's better than man-made religion. It's better than the current cultural value system. And we must hold fast the gospel and look to Christ, our captain, who now wields the sword as he marches on in victory. 
as the nations are being won to Christ. And so we get to follow behind Christ our captain, following joyously, following gloriously in his train, fighting the fight of faith, fighting the flesh, seeking that God would renew and restore us every single day as we seek to walk in his grace, to know his ways. So let's recognize the sin in us and let's be people who love sitting under the word of God, who love being opened by it, but who love even more that healing work that God does in us in Christ, worked by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good that you don't let us run without direction. You don't let us run headlong after our own sins without warning us in your word of the dangers. Lord, we thank you for the warnings of scripture. We thank you for the rebuke of your word that tells us Uh, Don't live this way, but then calls us to live in a better way, in a way of joy, in a way of peace, in a way of love, after the way of Christ. Lord, we need our Savior so much. We recognize that there's much sin left in our hearts that needs to get exposed. There are many dark corners, dark cobwebs in the rooms of our heart that we would love to see the light of your word reach and we would love to see your Holy Spirit clear. So Lord, cleanse us, we pray. Cleanse our hearts as we come to you day by day. Let us sit under the river of your grace that our hearts would be melted by your love, that we would be more and more transformed to the image of Christ. Lord, help us to love our brethren, that we would know how to speak a word in season, a word of encouragement, a word of comfort, but when necessary, Lord, a word of rebuke and correction, that we would not be willing to see anyone run off and stray from your commandments. Give us that courageous love. Lord, grant us godly leaders that will stay the course, that will help us to hold the faith and who will shepherd the sheep, And help watch over them in this way. Those who will speak the truth of the word of God to us. Lord we need your help. And we thank you and trust in your grace. That persevering grace. That grace that has brought us safe this far. We trust that that grace will indeed lead us home. So help us to be ever dependent. Ever looking to our Lord and Savior Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and uh, sing together this song of application. Holy Spirit, we sang earlier asking God to speak to us in his word, but the way that the Lord works through his word is by the applying work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we have his word open to us, we are now praying that the spirit would come and work these truths deep in our heart and that he would change us to be people that hold the course, that walk after the Lord Jesus. So let's pray this as our prayer for the Holy Spirit to transform you and I.